The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 19 Daily City Bondage I had seen Todd Nagel's address when I looked at his wallet at Fishman's Wharf, but I could not recall the street or the number. Finding them turned out to be as easy as calling information and asking. He lived on the 300 block of Palisades Drive, a street that paralleled the Pacific Ocean in the northwestern part of town, less than two miles from the San Francisco city line. I was feeling well-rested, well-breakfast, and peaceful, so rather than jumping on the freeway with all the morning commuters, I got on Geary and drove west to Point Lobos and the start of the Great Highway, which ran north and south along the beach. I drove south past the Cliff House and the ruins of the Sutro Bass, through Golden Gate Park and by the Dutch windmill that looked out on the area where the Beta Breakers race finished, down a long stretch of the highway where sand dunes and bicyclists bundled against the morning chill were the main features of interest. On to Skyline Boulevard, past Lake Merced and the attendant golf courses, and across a line into Daly City. The sky and ocean remained a featureless gray, and there was a heavy moisture in the air that had me running the creaky wipers on the galaxy the whole way down. Nagel's house was in a neighborhood filled with houses exactly like his. It was a two-story California stucco special, with the bulk of the living space layered on the second floor above the garage. The main things that distinguished the house from the rest on the block were the fresh yellow paint job, the well-manicured lawn with a plot of yellow and purple flowers I didn't know the names for, and a for-rent sign tacked on the garage door. I couldn't see into the backyard, but from looking at it on a map, I knew the lot must bud against a strip of parkland that ran along the ocean in this area. Daly City was not exactly a top-drawer address, but given the ocean view, the size and condition of the property, and the general prosperity of the neighborhood, this was a house that must rent for at least $1,600 a month. Somehow Nagel and $1,600 a month did not seem to go together. I wondered if the landlord was trying to evict him so he could rent the place to a better prospect. I walked across the lawn on irregularly shaped flagstones to the side of the house, where a flight of stairs led up to the door on the second floor level. The door was painted purple and had a buzzer in the middle. I pressed my elbow against the holstered Glock for reassurance, then leaned on the doorbell. The bell made an interesting mechanical chime, but more interesting still, the door slipped a latch and swung partially open. I nudged the door further open with my foot and called out, Candy Graham! Candy Graham for Mr. Nagel! If Nagel was there, he wasn't answering. He also wasn't making use of any furniture. With the exception of a half-filled plastic trash bag and a discarded light bulb, the living room I looked into was empty. I stepped inside. The carpet still had depressions from a couch and other furniture, and several logs remained stacked in the grate of the fireplace. A large window at the back of the house looked out on the yard, and beyond that, a green strip of bramble and eventually the beach and the ocean. I moved across the room to the adjoining breakfast nook and kitchen. Here there were more signs of recent occupancy, and even more recent departure. There were no pots, pans, or food in the cabinets, 
but coffee grounds covered the floor. A box of partially eaten donuts sat on the counter, and the refrigerator had a moldering pizza from a popular chain. I went out of the kitchen and down the hallway to the bedrooms. There were two of these, and both were stripped bare. I was just ducking into the bathroom for a look-see when I heard a muffled thumping noise. It seemed to come from below and behind me. I slipped the 9mm out of its holster and retraced my steps to a closed hallway door I had bypassed on my way to the bedrooms. The noise was much louder here. I gripped the knob, turned it carefully, pushed the door open. It gave on darkness and a set of concrete steps leading down. I flicked on the light and the thumping noise got louder, more urgent. A kind of strangled bellow joined it. Going down the steps, I found myself in a utility room at the back of the garage. The room had concrete walls, a concrete floor with a drain, and along one wall were a washer and dryer. Along another were a metal sink and a tall wooden cabinet. The noises came from the cabinet. Aiming the Glock in front of me, I jerked open one of the cabinet doors. Chris Duckworth lay face down on the floor. His hands and feet were hogtied behind him with a good ten yards of duct tape, and his mouth was taped shut with a strip that ran all the way around his head. He was wearing a gray sweatsuit. His eye looked up at me with a wild expression, and he tried to say something through the tape that might have been my name. I said, Don't get up on my account. He said two words with urgency that probably ended with you. My first instinct was to free Duckworth, but I didn't want to end up in the cabinet next to him, so I told him to hold tight for a minute and went through a door at the back of the utility room that led to the garage. There were no cars, and more importantly, no Todd Nagel lurking in the shadows waiting to jump me from behind. I went back to the utility room, locking the door to the garage behind me. I holstered the automatic and fished out the Swiss Army knife I had on my keychain. The little blade from the knife was sharp, but its small size made it hard to put any muscle behind the strokes. I concentrated on the band of tape that held Duckworth's arms and feet together. When I finally sawed through it, his legs dropped like a wooden dummy's, knocking over the mop and bucket in the far corner of the cabinet. He groaned through the tape. I freed his hands and feet and then rolled him out of the cabinet onto the concrete floor. He sat up with his legs in front of him, rubbing his hamstrings with hands that visibly shook. I think you better do your mouth, I said. Pulling off that tape is going to smart. Duckworth nodded his head in agreement and groped around the ring of tape to find the edge. He picked at it ineffectually until I finally got tired of watching him, brushed his hands away, and yanked off a foot or so of tape. This uncovered his mouth, but the strip that went around the back of his head was all too firmly in place. Jesus H. Christ, he yelped. I was getting to it, August. Yeah, and the polar ice caps are melting, but I haven't bought any water wings. He rubbed his face. At least I won't have to wax my mustache for a long while. How about that? Now I think you have a bit of explaining to do. He looked down and away. Yes, I suppose I do, he said and picked at the tape on his wrist. Well, I decided you could use some help after all, and I selected Nagel instead of Jody. I got his address from directory assistance, and then came down here early this morning. I was watching the house from my car at about 7.20 when Nagel came out and started loading stuff into his van. He brought out several loads, then closed the van door like he was finished and went back into the house. With the for rent sign and all, I thought he might be moving, and I didn't want him to get away. So I snuck back up the driveway where the van was parked and started letting the air out of his tires. I figured that would slow him down enough for me to call you to come down and apprehend him. 
I think you got me confused with Dick Tracy. What were you going to do? Call me on your two-way wrist radio? Come on, August. This is not a joke. Bingo. My point exactly. Duckworth looked up at me. I know what you're saying, and believe me, I'm never going to do anything like this again. Glad to hear it. So what happened next? You can probably guess. I got a little too absorbed in my task, and the next thing I knew, Nagel had come up behind me with a knife the size of a curling iron. He put the blade under my chin and said, What do you think you're doing, faggot? I was petrified. I couldn't think of a single word to say. Nagel didn't wait for an answer. He frog-marched me into the garage and through to this room and bound me up with a tape. Then he shut me in the closet and switched off the lights. A little while later, I heard his van start up and I figured he had gone. At that point, I really began to worry. I didn't know if you or anyone else would come to the house for days. I had horrible cramps in my hamstrings, and I imagined myself starving to death, locked up in that claustrophobic little space. You can't know how relieved I was when I heard someone walking around upstairs. I think I would have lost my mind if I had stayed there even 30 minutes longer. I felt bad for being flippant earlier. Sorry, I said. You know where you find sorry, don't you, said Duckworth, in the dictionary between shit and syphilis. But it's not your fault. You did your best to warn me off. Well, don't take it too hard. It could have just as easily happened to me. What else did Nagel say to you? Nada. He didn't seem particularly surprised or angry to find me here either. He was very efficient and dispassionate, like he was pulling a tick off his pet dog or something. Hmm, I said. Then here's an interesting question. How do you think he knew you were a little light in your loafers? What a sensitive way to phrase it, August. Why did he call me a faggot? Is that what you mean? I don't know. I may be a little fay when I'm not in drag, but most straights don't pick up on it. Especially when I'm doing something butch like letting the air out of tires. What's your point? Just this. Nagel must have already known who you are, which means that he was following me one of the times you and I met. Duckworth shivered. Then he knows where I live, and he could come back and do something else to me. I doubt it. If he were going to do anything particularly nasty, he would have done it when he ran into you here, and he wouldn't have left you at the house to be found. Duckworth pressed his fist into his eyes and rubbed them. I suppose. Let's get going. I don't want to stay here another minute longer. I pulled him to his feet. With the fragments of duct tape hanging from the back of his head and all four limbs, he looked more than a little ridiculous. You go ahead and take off. I'm going to nose around a little bit more. Duckworth nodded his head, the duct tape fluttering like a kite tail. Knock yourself out, he said. I walked him out through the garage and watched him get into his car and drive off. He was still a little shaky, but I didn't think he would have any trouble making it home. I went back inside and dumped the plastic trash bag in the living room onto the floor. It was pretty slim pickings. There were beer cans, a couple of football magazines, a torn t-shirt, bubble wrap, a roll of duct tape with about an eighth of an inch left, and a greasy red and white cardboard bucket with crumbs of fried chicken in it. Donuts, pizza, and now this. Here was a guy who actually ate worse than me. You had to be impressed. I went out the front door, down the steps, and through a gate at the side of the house. A strip of concrete had been poured next to the foundation, and corded firewood was stacked under the eaves beside a gas barbecue grill covered with a tarp. There was also a large plastic garbage can on wheels. I pulled out the pair of trash bags I found inside and plopped them onto the concrete. They were wet with dew and stunk to high heaven. Using the blade from my penknife, I slit them both open and stirred through the contents with a stick of kindling from the woodpile. 
There was more evidence of Nagel's fast food diet and of a recent oil change, four empty quart containers and a discarded filter. But mixed in amongst the debris of bad meals and auto maintenance were some of the personal papers I was looking for. I found and extracted a soggy credit card bill, several pages from a Pacific Bell phone bill, and a bent manila folder. The folder was of immediate interest as it contained a set of newspaper clippings going back almost 10 years, all dealing with a meteoric Silicon Valley career of Edwin J. Bishop. I shoved the bills into the folder with the clippings and cleaned up the trash as best I could. Then I made another pass through the garage, but didn't find anything of interest. The last thing I did before getting in my car to drive to East Palo Alto was to note down the telephone number written on the rent sign. I hoped that Nagel's landlord would be more helpful than Terry McCullough's had been. You have been listening to The Immortal Game, a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.